thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, every one of us have taken many tests in our lives. Tests are used to see uh, where someone or something is at, uh, how they're doing, how they're performing, uh, and if there's any concerns that need to be addressed, any problems that need to be fixed. We have medical tests, which I'm sure, especially as we get older, we have more and more of those to determine, you know, how's our health doing? How's our body performing? Are there concerns? Are there problems that need fixing? And we have school tests to determine how our education is doing, how much we're learning, if there are problems in certain subjects or certain areas that need to be addressed. We even have diagnostic tests to determine how our car is running and we take it to the shop and, you know, they plug it in and it, you know, shares problems that exist and areas that need to be fixed. And, you know, regular tests in these areas are important. So you can know how you're doing. Uh, you can know if there's problems. You can know if there's something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be fixed. Now, when we don't take tests, one of the issues that comes with that is we become ignorant of problems. We become ignorant of of issues that the test would reveal, but since we're not willing to take it, then all of a sudden we don't know these issues and therefore we ignore them because we don't even know that they exist. For example, if you didn't ever take any medical tests, if you never went to the doctor, if you never got your body checked, you could think, I'm doing great. Hey, you know what? I even feel great. But yet there could be a significant problem within your life, within your body, that's just getting progressively worse and ultimately could kill you. Several years back, Jenny's dad, Ernest, you know, he was feeling great and, you know, he just decides actually by his wife's um, you know, leading, just to go get a random test uh, for his body, for his heart, to check him out. And they find out his heart uh, is, you know, the valves are 90% blocked and they're freaking out and they're saying, you need, you know, open heart surgery now. If you have a heart attack, you're dead. So, you know, they find this, they're able to fix it. Uh, and this huge problem that could have killed him is now dealt with and he's able to survive and he's still with us today. But if he didn't take that test, he wouldn't have known. He was feeling okay. He would have just continued on and he most likely would have a heart attack and died. So you see, there are many tests that are important to regularly take so that we can find out areas that are issues, areas that are problems, and then address them and deal with them. But you know, the most important test, the most important thing to regularly take as believers in Christ are spiritual Tests. All the things I was listing are just practical things, but you know what? Spiritual tests are far more important. You and I should regularly be taking spiritual tests to determine, you know, where are we at spiritually? How are we doing in our relationship with God? Are there any concerns? Are there any things that we're not dealing with, sins that we aren't addressing? Are, are there areas that we need to grow in? These are questions and tests that are important for us to take. You know, as a pastor, I found that many Christians are often avoiding, you know, personal examination of their life spiritually. They're often avoiding taking these tests. uh, And the problem with that is just the same with the others. They don't see areas of sin. They don't see problem areas in their life because they're not taking the word of God and allowing it to examine their life, examine their heart, uh, and show them problems that need to be Address. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because the, the verses that we're going to be dealing with this morning, Paul is addressing the same group that he's been addressing since chapter 10, this group that has, you know, bought into these false apostles' lies, and, and Paul is now, you know, having to share with them that he truly is an apostle and give his credentials and share different things. And one of the things that we're going to see here this morning that he does is he gives them a test. He, he wants them to examine themselves. He wants them to say, you know what, where are you guys at spiritually? You have all these things coming against me. I think it's time that you really look at your own spiritual lives, that you really consider where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. Um, and 
considering this reality that Paul has has done this and is sharing this in this time, uh, I thought, you know what, it would be great that we look at this whole section as a spiritual test for us. Because the other thing that Paul's going to do in these verses is share his example of spiritual maturity, of how he lives his life in a spiritual way. And so as we see Paul's example and as we see the test that he gives, I want us to look at all of it in a spiritual test for us. And I want to share that with you because the three examples that Paul is going to give of his spiritual life is first, how he serves them. Second, how he acts towards them. And third, how he prays for them. And so we're going to be looking at those things. And and ultimately, there's going to be four spiritual tests that I'm going to pose to you today. And with those four spiritual tests, we're going to ask Eight questions. Eight questions to really think through yourself and hopefully recognize if there are problems in your life that, hey, I see them and now I need to address them. I need to ask the Lord to help me fix them. And if you ask a question, if I ask a question, you're saying, hey, I'm doing great in that. Good. Continue doing well in that. And so the four spiritual tests that we're going to take this morning is first we're going to take the serving survey test. This is a test to see how should we be serving. We're going to look at the great example in Paul's life and we're going to look and say, hey, are we doing this? Is this something that is, you know, in our life? And if not, there are some areas that need to be fixed. Second, we're going to take the action analysis test. This is going to be a test to see, you know, how are we acting? We're going to see the great example of how Paul acted, and we're also going to see the, the ungodly example of how the Corinthians were acting, and then we're going to look at our own lives. You know, how are we acting? Is it spiritual? Is it godly? Or is it ungodly? Are there areas that need to be addressed? Third, we're going to take the faith final test. This is the one that Paul gives to the Corinthians. You know, where is your faith at? And we're going to do, you know, some heart searching in that as well. Fourth, we're going to take the prayer proof test, a test to see, you know, hey, Paul, he has a great example of how he prays and what he prays for these believers. And we're going to look at our own life. You know, how are we doing in our prayer life? What is it that we're praying or are we praying at all? How we serve, how we act, where we're at in our faith with God, how we pray. These are four, you know, real foundational things as believers. And these are, you know, areas where it's like, if I'm going to take a spiritual test, these are great things to look at my own life and see how am I doing in these areas and can I improve and where does the Lord want me to change things. And so this is going to be hopefully very beneficial and I believe very applicable if we'll take these questions to heart and allow the Lord to work them in us. And so our first test is the serving survey where we're going to see this example of serving in Paul's life. I'm going to ask you four questions based on four things that Paul does that will challenge us in the way in which we serve. So starting where we left off last week, 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verses 14 through 18 says this. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus, and I sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Paul starts off by saying, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. The first time that Paul came was when on his missionary journey, he planted the church there. He was there for a year and six months. He did a lot of ministry there in Corinth. Uh, and then he departs and he continues on his missionary journeys. The second trip is between writing 1 Corinthians, the letter of rebuke, and writing this one. He comes after writing the letter of rebuke, and that was not a pleasant trip. That was a trip that had a lot of heartache and sadness and he didn't stay there very long. And now he's saying, hey, I'm ready to come back a third time. So now he's sharing that he wants to come, but he also shares, you know, when I do come, I want you to know how I'm going to come, how I'm going to serve you guys when I'm there. And the first thing he tells us is, I will not be burdensome to you. Paul wants them to know, you know, when I come to minister, to serve you guys, I want you to know I am not going to be burdensome 
to you. And this should be our heart when it comes to serving. We should have a desire. When I serve you, I want to be a blessing to you, not a burden to you. And maybe you think, well, of course, anyone who serves is going to be a blessing, not a burden. Well, that's not the case. If you've ever had people serve with you or serve under you for a long enough period of time, you realize that there are those who can serve in such a way that they're a burden instead of a blessing. I think one of the big ways that we can be a burden instead of a blessing when serving is when we complain the whole time we're serving. I remember, you know, I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I was kind of forced to serve in the church even when I didn't want to. Uh, and, you know, there was people that kept leaving this one class, this children's ministry class, which had all these out-of-control kids. Uh, and my dad thought it was a great idea to have me serve in there because, you know, people weren't staying in there. And he's like, well, you're going to do that, Matthew. And I was like, okay. So I started doing it, and it was horrible. Uh, and I complained after every single Sunday service about how much I hated it. And my dad would just respond, you know what, it's good for you, it's going to help you grow. And after really like a month or two of literally every Sunday complaining, finally my dad afterwards just tells me, you know what, you can no longer do this. And I'm like, well, what about, you know, this is going to help me grow. And he says, you know what, it's no longer good for anyone else. You're just causing harm. You're not helping. You're just constantly complaining. Um, and I think there's that reality that sometimes, you know, we get to a place and if you're just complaining and complaining and complaining about your service, then don't serve in that area anymore. I mean, that, that's not helpful. It becomes more of a burden than a blessing. You know, I think another way we can be a burden is by not giving our all in serving. You know, there's a lot of half-hearted serving. I know I've been guilty of it in my Christian life of really not giving much of anything, of just kind of, you know, half-heartedly doing it. And that oftentimes can be uh, more of a burden than a blessing or, or really not doing a good job. They kind of go hand in hand. You go half-heartedly and you often don't do a very good job within it. And, you know, if you're not doing a very good job, what often happens is someone else has to come and redo it because you didn't do it properly. Uh, and so, you know, what they thought was going to happen doesn't happen at all. And so, you know, what could have been a blessing now is a burden. And so just recognizing that, you know what, we can serve in such a way that's a burden. And Paul wants them to know, hey, I'm not going to be burdensome to you when I serve. And so the, the first question I want us to answer in our serving survey is when I serve, am I a blessing or a burden? Am I happy to, cons- to serve or do I complain the whole time? Do, do I give my all or do I just do it half-heartedly? Do I do a good job or do I really not care the kind of job that I do? If the answer is, you know what? Yeah, I am a burden in my service. Well, there is a problem that you now see that needs to be addressed. There's something that needs to change because that's not how God wants us to serve. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, For I do not seek yours, but you. When it came to serving the Corinthians, Paul was not seeking what they have. He was seeking them personally. Paul wants to make very clear. He serves because he loves the people, not because of what he can get from the people. And this is a huge thing that we need to understand when it comes to serving. And I think it's such a a great heart that Paul has. I do this because I love you. I do not do this for what I can get from you. And Paul goes on to kind of share an illustration to help make his point here. In verse 14, he says, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. You know, parents serve that they take care of their kids because they love them, not because of what they can get from their kids. They do it out of love. You know, I read a story of a mother who went down to breakfast one morning and found a, a bill uh, from her, you know, teenage son lying there next to her breakfast plate. He had written out mowing the lawn, $2, drying the dishes, $1, raking the leaves, $3, cleaning the garage, $4, total owed, $10. She just puts it aside, doesn't say anything, goes on with her day. He comes home after school, dinner time's ready, and next to his plate, it says, ironing clothes, nothing. Mending socks, nothing. Cooking meals, nothing. Cleaning the house, nothing. Bandaging cuts, nothing. Baking cookies, nothing. Love, mom. 
You know, this is the reality. Parents do things out of love. They don't charge anything to their kids. They just do it because they love them. And Paul wants this group of Corinthians to understand, hey, I serve you because I feel like I'm a father to you. I love you as my children. I don't do it for what I can get from you. I do it because I love you and want to give to you. You know, this is the heart that Jesus has as well. He didn't come and, and you know, he didn't do service towards us because of what he could get from us. He did it because he loves us. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The one who deserves service, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve others. He came to give his life for others. Why? Because he loves us. So when it comes to serving, I think we need to recognize our motive. The motive for why we do it is so important. And it leads us to the second question I want us to ask ourselves in our serving survey. What is my motive in serving? Love for others or what I can get from others? Are you serving because you love the people or are you serving because you want to get something from them? The answer to that is going to really reveal if there's a problem or not. If you say, well, yeah, I kind of serve just for what I can get. Well, then you need to address that. That's not the way in which God wants us to serve. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Notice that Paul says, you know what? I'm very glad to spend and be spent for you guys. I'm glad to spend my own money. I'm glad to spend my own resources. I'm glad to spend myself and my time on you. It brings me joy. It brings me gladness to serve you guys. But I want you to notice something here that in the midst of this gladness and serving, notice the response of the people he's gladly serving because I think it brings an even more uh, important reality that he's still glad because he's glad even though they don't appreciate his service. They don't appreciate him because he says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Hey, you know, the more I serve you guys, the more I pour love into you guys, the more I give of myself to you, it seems that the less you love me in return, it seems that I'm just not appreciated at all. You know, I know I have experienced this several times since being involved in ministry, pouring into people's lives, pouring my resources, myself, my time, my efforts, and the response is just a a complete lack of appreciation for anything that I've done, a lack of love. And it seems sometimes with some people, the more I tried, you know, the worse it got in the sense of their, you know, appreciation just got worse. And, you know, my flesh kicked in. And the Lord would challenge me. And, you know, how am I going to respond to this lack of love? How am I going to respond to the the lack of appreciation for the service that I gave? And I'm sure that you've been in a situation like that. If you serve for any period of time, you've had people who don't appreciate you. You have people who don't really care about what you've done for them. And, you know, it's not nice. We don't like it. We want to feel appreciated for the service that we give. But how do we respond to the unappreciative person. And many times when the Lord brought that to me, I had to be honest that I resented it. I had to be honest that I wish I didn't do it, that I felt like I wasted my time in serving that person and the way in which they responded to me. Uh, and, you know, after I kind of expressed those thoughts, several times the Lord really challenged me, you know, who are you serving? Who ultimately are you doing this for? Are you doing this unto me and for me or for them? Because if you truly are doing this unto me and for me, I appreciate it. I love you. I'm proud of what you're doing. Regardless of how they respond, regardless of what they think, I appreciate you. Is that enough? And sometimes if I was honest, I'd say, no, it's not. I want appreciation from them too. But, you know, it's coming to that place. I just said, you know, in service, it's important that we do it for love for people, not for what we can get for people. But we also need to understand in serving, first and foremost, it really has to be, I'm doing it for Jesus. Not for the people. I'm ultimately doing it for Jesus because you are always going to have people who don't appreciate you. 
You are always going to have people who don't care that you've invested in them and poured into them and, and given of yourself to them. There are just people that are not going to appreciate it. That's going to be the reality. So either you're going to do it unto Jesus and continue to serve, or you're going to say, well, forget these people. I'm stopping this. I'm not going to continue this because they don't appreciate what I'm doing. And if you're going to continue to serve the way that God calls us to, ultimately, we have to do it unto him. And I think we see that here with Paul. Paul recognizes, you know what? I'm doing it to Jesus. And I'm just going to gladly and joyfully serve you guys, even though the more I love you, the less I'm loved. Even though I invest in you, you don't appreciate it. I'm still glad to serve because ultimately I do it first and foremost to Jesus. So the third question to answer in our serving survey is, do you take joy in serving others because you're doing it unto the Lord? Can you be glad in serving even when people don't appreciate it because you know that God does? Is that enough? His appreciation, his love for what you're doing, is that a great enough motive for you to continue on? If the answer is no, I don't take joy in serving and I'm not going to continue to serve if people don't appreciate what I do, then once again, I think that reveals a problem in the serving that you're doing and you want to ask the Lord to help you change that. Paul goes on to say in verses 16 through 18, Be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Once again, Paul reminds them of the fact that he is a a blessing, not a burden to them. That is his desire and heart. And then he asks a very important question about himself and a question about someone that he sent to them. And the question is, hey, have I myself or Titus who I've sent been taken advantage of you now the answer should have been very clear to the corinthians the answer is no titus didn't take advantage of them paul didn't take advantage of them and i think something important to understand is when you and i serve others we can either give an advantage to them or we could take advantage of them in our service we can either serve them in a way that benefits them, that benefits their needs, so it's an advantage to them, or we can serve them in such a way that benefits us and benefits our needs, so we take advantage of them. You see, the reality is sometimes our service towards others is really just serving ourselves. We do it for ulterior motives. We do it for ourselves. Maybe it's for a position or a title or a pat on the back or or for what we can get. You know, I'm going to show this service so that they'll do something back for me. But but ultimately, the motive is, what can I get out of this? How can I benefit from this as opposed to, how can this person benefit from my service? What are they going to get out of it? Not about me, but about them. So the fourth question to answer in our serving survey is when I serve, do I give an advantage or do I take advantage? Am I serving for what they can get or am I serving for what I can get? And once again, if you are honest with yourself and you say, you know what, in some areas, I definitely serve to take advantage. I serve for me. That's a problem. You want to ask the Lord to help you change, that your service would be other-centered, focused on them, not on you. I think something important to note is the false apostles, those that many of these Corinthians were following, if they were to take this serving survey test, they would fail on all four of these questions because their serving was definitely a burden to the Corinthians. Their motive in serving was to take from the Corinthians. They didn't take joy in serving. They definitely didn't do it under the Lord and they took advantage of the Corinthians in their serving. So there's our first spiritual test. How have you done? As you look at these four questions, where are you at in your serving? Are there areas where God is speaking to you that are problem areas that need to be addressed? Well, now we're going to take our second test, which is the action analysis. We're going to see Paul's godly actions compared with the ungodly actions of the Corinthians. And this test will ultimately help us to see an area in which 
we should be acting in a godly way in areas in which we should not be acting ungodly. So let's start with Paul's godly action, which we see in verse 19. It says this, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Notice here that Paul reveals something, and it's a pretty powerful statement that he says, hey, me and those with me ministering and serving to you, we do all things for your edification. All the actions in our lives are done to edify you. Now, this Greek word here that is translated edification means to build up, to promote another's spiritual growth, to edify So Paul's saying, you know, all of my actions towards you guys have been to build you up in the Lord. It's been to to help you grow, to promote spiritual growth, to encourage your relationship with Jesus. Every letter I wrote, every visit I made, every prayer I prayed, that was for one main purpose, to build you up, to edify you, to help you grow in Jesus. Our actions towards others, our words towards others should be to help people grow. It should be to edify. You know, all throughout the Bible, we have this command of how we should edify through our words, through our actions. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, Let all things be done for edification. And everything that we do, what should be the goal? I should be doing it to edify, to build up others. Ephesians 4.29, this one's probably more difficult for us. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the healers. Hearers, sorry. This verse says, don't let corrupt words come out of your mouth, because corrupt words, they don't build people up. They don't edify people. They tear them down. Instead, use words that build people up. You know, I saw a post recently on Facebook. It said, love your neighbor, but you can say whatever you want about someone as long as you add, just saying. I'm sure you've been around people like that. They'll just totally rip into someone and and say all these harsh things. And then they just kind of end with just saying, like, that makes it okay. You know, it's okay that I said all that because just saying it's true. You know, that's not okay. It'd be much better to take your mom's advice. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You know, just saying nothing, it'd be a better thing. But, um, you know, this is a problem where so often we use our words to tear down instead of use our words to build up. And Paul wants them to know, you know what? I acted in a way that was to edify, that was to build up, that was to encourage your growth in Christ. Well, now Paul's going to share, you know what? But I have some fears about you guys. Here's how I've been acting, but I've seen in your life a very different type of action that is not godly, that tears down. Notice what he says in verses 20 and 21. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you as such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Paul gives a long list of ungodly actions that the Corinthians practiced in the past, and that he's a concern and fearful that they might still be practicing, and when he comes in the future, will be practicing when he gets there. And I want you to know in this whole list, we're not going to you know break down everything that he says. I just want you to realize the whole list, one, is ungodly, but two, all of it is something that does not edify. It tears down, it hinders growth, it does not promote it. And so here we have a complete opposite way in which the Corinthians were acting and speaking to Paul. Paul did things to edify. They were doing things that were tearing down. Even what they were saying, many of them, about Paul was not something to edify. It was something to tear down and to hinder and to hurt. There's only one question I have in our action analysis test, and that's do your actions build others up and help them spiritually grow, or do they tear others down? Or think about it this way. When you spend time with people and they leave your presence, 
Do they leave built up? Do they leave encouraged? Do they leave better off spiritually than when they were with you? Or do they leave torn down? Do they leave discouraged? Do they leave worse off spiritually than when they were with you? Maybe this is a question that you want to pose to someone who spends a lot of time with you. You know, how do you feel in my presence? What do my actions display towards you? Do do I build you up? Do I encourage you? Do I encourage you in your relationship with God? And you might get some responses that you don't like, but they might be very beneficial to reveal, hey, there's problems. If you say, yeah, you know what? A lot of my words tear people down. A lot of my actions are not edifying. Well, that's not where God wants us to be. And so another thing that we can focus on to see the Lord change. I think it's been rightly said, actions speak louder than words. Edgar Guest, a famous English poet, wrote this, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. Yeah, I think most of us as Christians, you know, we know how we should be acting, and we oftentimes are willing to tell others how they should be acting. But the real question is, how are we acting? Not Do we know how we should and do we know how to tell others how they should? But the real question is, how are we actually acting? How are we living our life? Do we practice what we preach? Do we act in a way that edifies others and helps them spiritually grow? You know, something about Bible study in general is God does not want us just to know what his word says. He wants us to do it. Just to be able to say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to act this way and do this and do that and never actually do it is worthless. That knowledge hasn't actually done anything to change our life. God wants us to apply these truths, not just to have a head knowledge of what it is. Well, now we're going to come to the next spiritual test, which is the faith final. This is the test that Paul is going to challenge these Corinthian believers, this group that was following false apostles that was saying ungodly things about him that weren't true. He wants them to really examine their faith. But before he gives this test, he's going to share some important information about kind of why he wants them to do this. Notice what he says here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth are two or three witnesses. Every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Paul says, notice here at the beginning, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and he quotes it into in the reference of when I come and visit you for the third time, this is the way in which I'm going to do it. Now, this is interesting because Deuteronomy 19 is dealing with the proper way to bring judgment upon someone in sin. And you do it, you must have at least two witnesses in order to do that. And so by quoting this verse, Paul is bringing out, hey, when I come the third time, I'm going to come and judge your sin. Uh, So much so that he writes, I write to you, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Those are strong words. I'm not going to spare any of you who are sin. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to judge those things. And one of the reasons he's coming this way is because they seek a proof of Christ speaking in Paul, who is not weak towards them, but mighty in them. If you remember back in chapter 10, one of their problems, oh, Paul, you're so weak and you're so lowly in person and you seem so strong and powerful in your letters. Why can't you be strong and powerful in person like you are in your letters? And so Paul is ultimately saying, you know what, the third time I come to you, I'm going to come strong and powerful. I'm going to come rebuking you. I'm going to come judging you. I'm going to come dealing with your sin. Then Paul uses Jesus as an example of what he's going to be like. For though Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. 
Just as Jesus displayed weakness but yet reigns in power, Paul will come with that similar power after having first come to them in weakness. Now, one of the reasons Paul is revealing this to them is because, you know what, he says, I want you guys ultimately to deal with your sin. Your your sin's going to be dealt with one way or another. Either you guys are going to deal with it before I come, or I'm going to deal with it when I come. My preference, as we've seen through this letter, is that you would deal with it before I come. I want you to have a self-examination. I want you to get right with God. I want you to repent. I don't want to have to come and deal with this junk. I'd much rather you guys deal with it now, and so when I come, our relationship and our time together can be pleasant. But if you don't, let me tell you really clearly, when I come, I'm not just going to not say anything. I'm going to judge and deal with the sin that you guys are going through. And so now... He's going to challenge them with the faith final in verses 5 and 6. If you really want to get yourself right, if you really want to deal with your sin, then I have an important question for you to ask yourself. And here it is, verse 5 and 6. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul's challenge is examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Paul is asking this group of Corinthians. Now remember, this group that was being very carnal in their behavior, that was following false apostles, that was uh, sinful in the way in which they were dealing with Paul, they were unrepentant. He says, you know what? I have a very sobering question that I want you to ask and consider. Basically, am I really a Christian? Here is the faith final. Paul challenges his group to ask, you know, is Christ really in them? Am I really saved. He says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? As Paul looks at the lives of many of these Corinthians who are claiming that they're Christians and he's seen the unrepentant sin and he's seen the way in which they're living and he's seen the false apostles that they're following. He's saying, you know what? You guys might be disqualified. You might not have actually ever truly accepted Christ. You might not really be Christians, and so you should examine yourself. You should get real. That should be the starting point for you. Am I a follower of Jesus? Have I accepted Christ as my Savior? But he goes on to say, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul is anticipating a counter question. Well, if you're going to ask us to examine if we're Christians, why don't you examine if you're a Christian, Paul? Well, he says, I trust that you will know that we're not disqualified, that you can see even from what I just shared in our serving and in our actions that we've shown you that we truly are followers of Jesus. In our world today, many people, they go to church, they do good works, you know, they pray, and they feel like it's those good things that ultimately make them a Christian. If I go to church regularly, you know, if I say a few prayers here or there, if I'm good to people around me, then I am a Christian. But we don't become Christians by what we do. We become Christians by what we believe concerning Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This verse makes very clear, our salvation is by grace through faith. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. It's undeserved favor from God. So it's by grace, meaning there's nothing we could do to earn salvation. That's why it's not of ourselves. That's why it's not of our works, lest anyone should boast and say, oh, look at all the things I did to earn salvation. No, you can't earn it by your works. Salvation is a gift of God that you and I have to receive by placing our faith in who Jesus is, that he is God, and in what he has done for us. That he came and lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he took the judgment of our sin that you and I deserve, which is hell, and he did that so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. So you're not saved 
by trusting in your works. That doesn't save you. And for many people, they're in this middle category, which also doesn't save you. And that is, oh, I trust in Jesus plus my works to save me. What Jesus did on the cross for my sins, definitely I have to believe that to be saved, but it's not enough. I also have to trust in my works. So it's Jesus plus my works ultimately equals salvation. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches faith in Jesus alone, trusting in Jesus alone. What he has done is what saves us. It's not our works, but the work that he has done on our behalf. So there's only one question really that Paul is posing here in this faith final. Have you trusted in Jesus alone to save you from your sins? Are you trying to earn your way to God through your good works? Or are you trusting in the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross? If any of you would answer the question, you know what? No, I am not trusting Jesus alone. Maybe I haven't put my trust in Jesus at all, or maybe I'm trusting Jesus plus my works. If either of those are your answer, then you have the biggest problem of all. You know, we've listed problems in serving, we listed problems in action, but you know what? This problem is the worst one because this problem brings the judgment of God upon us for all eternity in hell. Our sin can only be dealt with one way, and that is putting our trust in Jesus alone to save us. So if this is a problem that you have, I encourage you, deal with it before you leave here today. Well, now we come to our final spiritual test, and that is the prayer proof. We're going to see two things that Paul prays for these Corinthians who were struggling in their relationship with God, or maybe some didn't even have a relationship with God. And it's going to be a challenge for us in our prayer lives. Verses 7 through 10 says this. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak that you are strong. And this we, on this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul prays two different things here for these Corinthians. And the first one, the first prayer is that they would do no evil. Paul wants them to know, hey, I'm praying for God to help you in this evil, sinful behavior that is in your life. And Paul wants to clarify the reason he prays this prayer. He doesn't pray so he can appear approved before them. Hey, I'm praying for you guys so you'll approve of me and accept me as an apostle. No. That's, he's not doing some insincere prayer for their approval. He prays this because he wants them to do what is honorable. And he knows the only way you're going to live honorable lives before the Lord is if you deal with your evil sin that you haven't been dealing with. Paul knows that it's only with God's help that that's going to happen. You guys aren't going to be successful in overcoming your sin if you're not depending on God if he's not helping you to do it. And so I'm going to continue to pray for you that God would help you overcome these sin issues that you have. Something we need to recognize in our own lives and in the lives of others is that we have sin, and the only way to really address and deal with it is if we rely upon God to help us. And so this is such an important prayer that we would sincerely seek the Lord for others and for our own personal lives and our own personal sin. Lord, I need help. I want to overcome this sin area. I want to overcome you know, this thing that I'm dealing with. And I recognize I can't do it on my own and I need you to help me to do it. You know, the reality is that most Christians aren't sinful or doing sinful things because they're ignorant of the sin in their life. You know, most Christians, you talk to them, it's like, you know, you shouldn't be lying. Oh, really? I didn't even know that was wrong. I'm going to stop it right now. Oh, you shouldn't gossip. You shouldn't, you know, do whatever. You know, most of us are pretty aware that, yeah, this is a sin. So it's not so much, oh, we're just a bunch of ignorant people that if someone would just point out our sin, everything would be great because we'd finally see that we're doing something wrong. Most of us recognize that we're sinning and that it's biblically wrong. That's not really the problem for most. The problem for most is they're not relying upon God to help them. 
That's the real issue. Uh, yeah, I see that I'm sinning and I'm going to just get right and I'm just going to make it happen and I'm just going to stop sinning. Yeah, that never works because in and of ourselves, we don't have what it takes to stop sinning. We don't have what it takes to change ourselves. We are in desperate need of God's help in the process. So Paul gives a great prayer to pray for ourselves, to pray for others, a prayer asking God to help us not to do those evil, sinful things. So the first question I have in the prayer proof test is, do you regularly pray for God to help you and others not to sin? Is that a regular prayer in your life? If the answer is no, I don't pray that regular for me or I don't pray that regularly for others, then once again, here's a problem that needs to be addressed. Because if you and I don't pray for God to help us overcome our sin, it just reveals something very clear. We don't think we need God's help. We think we can do it on our own. Because that's what it's saying. If I knew I can't do it, I would regularly pray for God's help. That, that's the natural response to recognizing I can't do it. I only can do it with God. And so I'm going to pray regularly for that. My lack of prayer shows I'm not really convinced of that. I think I can handle this. I don't need your help, God. That's why I don't ask for it. You know, the reality is each one of us are tempted to sin every day. So we should be praying every day, personally, <laughs> for our own sin, and praying every day, you know, oh, for our spouse, or for our kids, or for our loved ones, or for our neighbors, or whoever. You know, you see sin in their life, and you see, oh, I want them to overcome it. And instead of just pointing it out to them, why don't we pray for them? Why don't we ask God to help them change, to help them overcome? So Paul's, Paul's first prayer is that God would help the Corinthians overcome their evil sin. His second prayer is that they would be made complete. This Greek word translated complete means to come to maturity through training, discipline, and instruction. So it'd be more accurately translated maturity. So Paul's prayer is, you know what, Lord, I want to see these Corinthians come to spiritual maturity in you. Now, just like with overcoming sin, we can't become spiritually mature without God's help. You don't just go to sleep and wake up, oh man, I am now spiritually mature, even though I was immature yesterday, now I'm spiritually mature today. It'd be nice if that was how easy it was, but it's not that way. God's given us three tools, three things at our disposal for spiritual growth to happen. The first one is prayer, which Paul is doing. The second one is God's word that makes us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the third one is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, who convicts us of our sin and gives us the power to overcome it and live a godly life. And it's only if we take advantage of those three things that we're going to become mature spiritually. Just like with sin, if we're just trying on our own, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get to be the spiritual giant depending on myself. Well, that's not going to work. So the second prayer that Paul prays is also a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves. It's a great prayer for us to pray for others, that God would help us and others spiritually mature. So the second question I have for our prayer proof test is, do you regularly pray for God to help you and others spiritually mature? If the answer is no, no, I don't pray that God would help me grow spiritually. I don't pray for others in that regard either. Once again, that's a problem. A problem that reveals I don't really think I need God's help to spiritually grow. I don't really think they need God's help to spiritually grow. As Christians, regularly taking a spiritual test, regularly examining ourselves and just being clear and open and honest of where we're at spiritually, I think it's just a healthy thing. You know, not something that we put off for years, you know, something that we regularly do. Let's see where we're at. Let's see what areas that need to be addressed are in our life. A.W. Tozer, a great pastor and commentator, said this about the importance of every Christian examining themselves. He says, the philosopher Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living. If a common philosopher could think that, how much more we Christians ought to listen to the Holy Spirit when he says, examine yourself. An unexamined Christian lies like an unattended garden. Let your garden go unattended for a few months and you will have, and you will not have roses and tomatoes, but weeds. An unexamined Christian life is like an unkept house. Lock your house up as tight as you will and leave it long enough and you will come back and you will find 
You will not believe the dirt that got in from somewhere. An unexamined Christian is like an untaught child. A child that is not taught will be like a savage. It takes examination, teaching, instruction, discipline, caring, tending, weeding, and cultivating to keep the life right. I think this is a great challenge, and he brings up the reality, and I like his illustrations. You let something go for long enough, and big problems exist. If we just keep going through the motions and not ever really examining our Christian life month after month after month, we're not really taking God's word and examining ourselves and seeing where we're at and how we can grow, we're going to decline. We're going to have problems. We're going to not see issues that need to be addressed. And so it's so important for us, and I would say if you're regularly in God's word, that should be a time where you're regularly examining yourself based on what you're studying. God, where do I need to change? What do I need to grow in? Where are sins in my life that need to stop? But you know what? Sometimes we're unaware. We're unaware of sin. We're unaware of failure. We're unaware of issues. And here's a prayer that I think is important for us to pray because oftentimes we are aware and we can deal with those things. But when there are things that we're blind to and ignorant of, David prayed a prayer that I think is so important for us to pray. In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David recognized something. You know what, Lord? I realize there are times I am ignorant to my own sin, and I ask you to search my heart to find if there is any wicked way in me. If there's something in me that I don't see, Lord, please reveal it to me. If there's sin in my life that I'm not aware of, I want to be aware of it because I want to address it. I want to change from it. I don't just want to, oh, it's okay. You know, out of sad, out of mind. I'd rather not know. No, we should want to know so that we can change. So that through the Lord's help, we can see victory in that. And, and so I want to close this morning by really just putting that into practice that we just take some time to be quiet before the Lord and to ask him that actual question, Lord, search my heart. If there's any wicked way in me, reveal that to me. And I want to encourage you as well. I'm going to put these eight questions back up on the screen. You know, Lord, as we've been going through this, maybe you've already had the Spirit of God saying, yep, you're failing here. Here's a problem in this area, whether it's serving or actions or faith or prayer. And, you know, that you would say, Lord, I want to change. I want you to help me to stop doing this or to start doing what I haven't been doing. And so just between you and God, we're just going to have a time to be quiet. Uh, and I encourage you, you know, just get before the Lord. If you need to repent of things, do it. If you need God's help and strength, ask for it. And let's just take some time to allow the Lord to minister to us and to try to put these things into practice. And so uh, we're just going to be quiet before the Lord.